Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for November 3rd, 2021. I'm Joy LaClaire. With us for the full hour today is Kathleen Ballou, International Authority on the White Power Movement and Assistant Professor of History at the University of Chicago. I have wanted to interview Professor Ballou ever since I read her hugely important and informative book, Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement and Paramilitary America in 2018. She now has a compilation of essays, A Field Guide to White Supremacy, which she co-edited with her colleague at the University of Chicago, history professor Ramon A. Gutierrez. It contains the writings of a diverse group, among them Kianga Yamata Taylor, Jamel Bowie, Judith Butler, Rebecca Solnit, just to name a few. In September of 2019, Professor Ballou was a witness at a congressional hearing on confronting white nationalism. In her witness statement, she described the white power movement as a threat to our democracy and that it is transnational. Her research and writings decry the notion that attacks such as the massacres at the Christ Church Mosque in New Zealand, the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, or the El Paso Walmart are the work of lone wolves. We spoke with Kathleen Ballou on October 28, 2021. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Professor Kathleen Ballou. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. I have wanted to have you as our guest ever since your seminal book, Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America, was published in 2018. And now that A Field Guide to White Supremacy, which you edited with Ramon A. Gutierrez, has just been released by the University of California Press, this interview is particularly relevant as three major trials involving race are unfolding, the federal civil trial in Charlottesville, Virginia of 24 white supremacist groups and individuals who are alleged to have organized the Unite the Right rally in August of 2017, and in Madison, Wisconsin, the criminal trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who crossed state lines as a 17-year-old and is accused of the murder of two anti-racism protesters and the wounding of a third has begun, and in Brunswick, Georgia, the trial of Gregory and Travis McMichael and William Bryan, who are charged with chasing down and murdering Ahmad Arbery. All three of these trials are now in jury selection, and as we record this conversation on October 28, 2021, do you have any comments of this troika of headlines dominating the proceedings? You know, the one thing I would say is that we might also consider the work of the January 6th commission underway at the same moment as another kind of trial that seeks to engage the same issues and to determine who was involved in the organizing and planning of the insurrectionist activities that day. But yes, it's extraordinary to see this many sort of major trials underway on the same timing, that they're all in jury selection in the same week. It's really notable. And I think it's a really good place to observe how our systems, both local and national, are and are not equipped to deal with the problem of racial violence. Yes. Among the things you document in your work are the failures of trials to bring justice, whether it's the trial of those responsible for the Greensboro massacre in 1979, or the Fort Smith, Arkansas trial of 1988, or the recent Bundy trials. Juries do not hold white, right-wing, radical racists or anti-government activists accountable. Would you share with our listeners about the evidence in the Fort Smith case as an example? Sure. So the Fort Smith trial was a federal case mounted against 13 people in 1987 in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and the charges included seditious conspiracy, which is to say the trial sought to prove that these white power activists who came from Klan, neo 
neo-Nazi and other white separatist ideologies sought to come together in a criminal conspiracy to violently overthrow the United States. And I know that sounds huge, but that is, in fact, exactly what these activists were doing. The trial proved their communication, um, their social networks that linked together these people and also revealed a whole bunch of information that was quite conclusive. But because of the way that the trial worked, important evidence was excluded. So one activist, Lewis Beam, who had been apprehended while on the run in Mexico, was arrested with enormous amounts of evidence that would have been persuasive. None of that could be included in the trial because of chain of custody protocols. The weapons that were used by this movement were never shown to the jury. And these included not only kind of the usual automatic and semi-automatic rifles, but also things like anti-tank weapons and the fact that these groups had manufactured their own napalm and landmines. So what with one thing and another, the evidence just didn't reach the jury. Then there were issues with the construction of the jury pool as well, the most notable one being that two jurors had romantic relationships with defendants during the trial, which I think reasonable people can agree is not an impartial jury. And others in the jury pool went on record saying that they themselves supported racial segregation and saying that the Bible prohibited interracial marriage. What about the cyanide? Oh, yes, the cyanide. <laughs> You're referring to the seizure of pounds, literal pounds of cyanide that were intended for the organized poisoning of the water supply of a major city. They talked about doing that here in Chicago, where I live, and, and that would have killed about 400,000 people. That's part of the evidence that was heard by the jury during the sedition trial and was not considered persuasive enough to find in favor of the, the federal government. Well, you mentioned issues around the jury selection, and Nicole Lewis and Dahlia Lithwick have an article in this morning's slate, Three Trials in America, the conversations playing out in courtrooms in Kenosha, Charlottesville, and Georgia are revealing. And they point out that suggests in the jury selection in Georgia, for example, I'm quoting from that article, suggesting that anti-black racism exists or is a problem seemingly disqualifies one from serving on a jury in a case in which the defendants are also charged with a racially motivated hate crime against a black man. So the whole idea of trying to get a neutral jury composed of people whose minds are not yet made up about the existence of racism I'm sputtering because it's just mind-boggling that people can be excluded from a jury if they are informed of history and even current events and suspect that there might be systemic racism in this country. That's apparently grounds to exclude them from juries. I wonder if you have any comments about this bind. That is a stunner, isn't it? I mean, the way that juror exclusion works, you should have this conversation sometime with a legal historian who can do better with this question than I can. But I think these things look like decisions that are about a particular case. But of course, they're not about a particular case, right? We could think about this, the jury selection for the Greensboro trial in 19, the shooting in 79, the trial in, in 81, I believe. The jury selection there was limited by peremptory challenges, peremptory meaning the dismissal of a juror without cause. So nobody had to say why they were dismissing those jurors. But what they used that for was to create an all-white jury. Or we could think about the way that the Fort Smith trial, the jury was selected based on having not heard about the white power movement. But this was a trial that occurred very close to a sort of high-profile bust of a white separatist compound just a few years before. So effectively, what that decision did was to remove jurors who read the news and consumed information. These decisions can be hugely monumental. And I mean, in the Arbery case, the idea that someone cannot understand the country's history and also serve on a jury, I find that deeply troubling. One more synchronicity Yesterday was the third anniversary of the massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue, which was on October 27, 2018. Eleven worshippers were killed and six were wounded, including several Holocaust survivors. The case is illustrative of many of the elements that your historical research identifies about white power. 
In referring to Central American migrant caravans and immigrants, the shooter wrote on the site Gab, quote, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society likes to bring invaders in that kill our people. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics. I'm going in. That's the end of his post, quote, He was portrayed in the press as another mentally ill lone wolf. But your historical analysis serves to demolish this as a way of viewing these sorts of things. Would you expand on that, please? Absolutely. And this is sort of what my contribution essay in the field guide is trying to debunk, is this idea of the lone wolf terrorist To be sure, I think there are individual acts of violence in the United States, including individually motivated mass violence. But I don't think we should ever use the phrase lone wolf when we're describing white power terrorism, because what that does is break apart a number of events that we should be confronting as part of the same problem. So the Tree of Life is usually described as an anti-Semitic act of violence the attack in Charleston as anti-Black violence, the attack in El Paso as anti-Latino violence, the attack in Christchurch, New Zealand as anti-Islamic violence. And they are all of those things, but all of those gunmen are part of the white power movement. They all share an ideology, a set of symbols, a set of targets, and they even share tactics that they're picking up from each other. When those communities can understand that they are being attacked by the same movement, I think that there is much more ability for people to come together around that shared experience. And those communities don't all have equal access to sympathy and money and media. Those are resources that can be shared between those people. The other thing I'll mention is that this idea of the lone wolf comes from a deliberate strategy that was adopted by the white power movement in 1983 called leaderless resistance, which is effectively cell-style terrorism. And the idea is that one or a few activists could work alone but towards common purpose without communicating with each other and without communicating with movement leadership. And they did that because infiltration by the FBI and other federal agents during the the civil rights era had become a big problem for Klan groups. And they did that because they thought it would make it more difficult to take them to court, which it has. But the biggest outcome of leaderless resistance, the most catastrophic consequence, is that we as a society have lost sight of white power as a organized social movement with a clear political ideology that needs to be opposed and combated. And instead, what we consume are these one-off stories that can convey, at best, only a fragment of the problem we face. I want you to expand on that. You mentioned the leaderless resistance. We've talked about the failed trials, but there's a third element that you talk about in your essay, There Are No Lone Wolves, and that is the large-scale forgetting and how the FBI and other agencies actually focuses on the lone wolf concept and eschews following through to link these things as a movement. Would you expand on that, please? Absolutely. So what happened before the Oklahoma City bombing is that the failed sedition trial, in combination with the highly publicized standoffs between federal agents and extremists at Waco and Ruby Ridge. Ruby Ridge is a white power incident. Waco is not, but it is taken up by this community as if it had been. What happens is that after those events, the federal side sort of makes this big policy change and the FBI says they will no longer prosecute the whole movement. They're going to look at individual crimes only, which means that when the Oklahoma City bombing happens, there is a policy in place, a document in place saying that the investigation should be limited to looking only at Timothy McVeigh and his co-conspirators. They don't account the many social ties that McVeigh had with other white power groups. They don't trace resources. They don't release a sufficient amount of information. And they don't think about things like McVeigh's extensive sort of coming up within this movement, which I document over a full chapter of Bring the War Home, in which we probably don't have time to get into very much right now. But what that does is from the beginning, when we want to understand what was the Oklahoma City bombing, the narrative coming out is that this was the work of one person or a few disaffected radicals. 
we don't get a narrative that it is part of a movement that has not only struck at the heart of the nation, but is still here and still working. This is clear immediately and over the long term. Militia groups, the numbers rise after the Oklahoma City bombing. And the movement finds Stormfront.com, which lets it begin to organize even more intently online, although it had been doing that for more than a decade already by the time of the bombing. One of the ways I like to think about this with my students is the Oklahoma City bombing is the largest deliberate mass casualty event in the United States between Pearl Harbor and 9-11. But most people are walking around without any idea of what it was or what it meant. It doesn't even register. And when we do talk about it, it is as a lone wolf or a bad apples or disaffected madman. When instead, we need to be thinking about it as part of a groundswell that is still present in our national politics. And I think the very good news here is that people are starting to come around and understand the nature of this threat, even at the level of the surveillance agencies. And I think we are now seeing a, a turning of the tide in this particular area. Well, Professor Ballou, I think you are responsible, at least in part, for that. With your book, Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement and Paramilitary America, and the title, Bring the War Home, is actually a quote from Lewis Beam, and it brings up your thesis that after every war, there is a rise in the white power movement. Would you briefly share with our listeners how that is so? Yes. So this is a really interesting sort of correlating factor across American history that every time we see a rise in vigilante violence and revolutionary violence along these lines, it is in the aftermath of warfare. So we see surges in the Ku Klux Klan after the Civil War, after World War I, after World War II in Korea, and then the white power movement after Vietnam and running into the wars of the present moment. We have McVeigh was a Gulf War veteran, and now we are seeing the aftermath of the global war on terror impact these groups as well. So sometimes, but not always, this has to do with direct links between people who have served and what they do when they come home. So we do see veterans and active duty troops rising to positions of authority in these groups, partly because they have an outsized impact by bringing skills and training to other activists. But it turns out that this phenomenon is not just about veterans. It turns out that the sociological literature shows us that all of us are more violent in the aftermath of warfare. That measure cuts across gender. It cuts across age group. It cuts across who did and didn't serve. So what we know is that it is a moment when people are available for this kind of recruitment and radicalization. And I think what's happening is that these groups have figured out how to take advantage of that social formation. In addition to racism, the authors in A Field Guide to White Supremacy also address xenophobia, misogyny, homophobia, anti-Semitism, and transphobia. These are not always associated with white supremacy. Why did you include them? Thank you so much for the question. My co-author, Ramon Gutierrez, and I approached this really from a reverse direction, I think is the answer. So coming at the question of the history of white supremacy from the starting point of racial violence, I think puts into perspective how much all of those things are in play in service of this broader system of power. So, for instance, if you think about, like, what does violence against women have to do with white supremacy? The answer is clear if you look at extremist groups where we see that the birth of white children has become so important. The white birth rate has become so central that the behavior of white women has to be hyper-policed and regulated very, very, very heavily in order to sort of ensure the birth of white children. And you can read outward from that to see the way that violence against women and gender normative violence ensures those structural workings in our broader society. Do you think that the recent outpouring of anti-abortion legislation is rooted in what you just described? I think that's part of what's going on with anti-abortion legislation. The, the white power movement has, and let me just clarify here for a second about language. When I say white power, I'm talking about a social movement on the militant right 
that brings together Today, this is Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, and similar groups, Adam Waffen and the base. In the 1980s, it was Klansmen, Skinheads, Neo-Nazis, and, and the militia movement, parts of the militia movement. All of that is organized racial violence. I think it might help to think about white supremacy as a much bigger system of behaviors and beliefs and histories and structures. So if you think about this as like a, a wooden fence, the fence as a whole is white supremacy. And the fence was put up by people who would espouse white supremacy themselves, people with belief. And the planks of the fence include racial violence, but they also include things like violence against women, like differential outcomes in healthcare, like differential outcomes in education, the way our incarceration system works. That fence is standing even when nobody in that particular room individually is pushing for white supremacist outcomes. It's different than individual racist belief, although racist belief still is reinforcing the fence and repairing it from time to time. So when we're thinking about the place of anti-abortion legislation, part of it for white power activists, that much smaller group, they see that as being directly connected to the white birth rate. And they oppose abortion because they think that it will reduce the number of white children. And sometimes they also oppose abortion because it is part of a feminist agenda and they don't like feminism because they want women to be home having and rearing white children and then fighting in a race war. The less extremist version of thinking about that is that the control of women's reproduction is deeply, deeply important to white supremacy, much more than the control of men's reproduction. And we can look back in our history to see that when white men crossed the color line, it was very lightly policed. It was often permitted as part of generating profit or as part of racial violence. When white women cross the color line, we see some of the harshest legal penalties. We see vigilante violence. We see very, very harsh consequences also for the women involved. We know that white supremacy in history has depended on the birth of white children. And so white women become very important to control. We're going to get to the great replacement theory and the anti-immigrant end of it and just the bad attitudes towards anyone not perceived to be white. But just a little bit more on the abortion thing, even following their logic, it doesn't make sense because if you make it difficult for women to control their reproduction, that means people of color are also going to be reproducing, which feeds into their great replacement fear. So I just don't get that part. But anyway, <laughs> that's just now, me. I think you're right. I think that one's a logical jump. And I think that part of the answer might be in thinking about the formation of the anti-abortion movement. There's a fantastic new book out by Jennifer Holland called Tiny You that traces that history. And part of what she talks about is the way that white people found a sort of way to tap into human rights and victim narratives through anti-abortion activism that, that sort of created a path to politicize domestic spaces that were then valuable to people on the right more broadly. And here again, I'm not talking about white power activists. I'm talking about the movement in general. But I, I do agree with you. It's a logical point. It's tricky to discuss these things. Such a minefield of people's ideologies and religious beliefs and misinformation and everything else. Since we're on this topic, let's talk about the Great Replacement Theory and the realities of immigration and particularly the idea that when women from other nations come here, they're going to out-reproduce people of European descent. So talk about that, please. Sure. So that has been a concern in the United States for a very long time. As this field guide documents, we can trace that through the history of exclusion of Asian and Islamic immigrants. We can trace that through anti-immigration sentiment and the construction of our deportation regime. We can trace this in a whole bunch of different ways in extremist texts. But the idea sort of rests on this supposed hyper-fertile or overly reproductive woman of color living elsewhere compared to the declining white birth rate at home. So 
this is the sort of thing that is often thought about by people in the mainstream as a soft demographic transformation. And the last time was after the the latest census numbers came out recently. There was a bunch of stories about it's a more multiracial America. People in the white power movement would think about that as an apocalyptic threat because they think that intermarriage and the diluting the white race will lead to racial annihilation. And I think that a much less fringe position, but one that's commonly held, is that there might be something white about America that has to be preserved in order to maintain something. So that kind of logic shows up as what the Proud Boys would call Western chauvinism, or the idea that Western culture is just superior and the historical legacy of democracy and therefore has a indelible place in our national life and culture, or It can show up as anti-immigration resource guarding kinds of arguments. It can show up as demonization of immigrants. But what we see is over the long haul, many groups of people have come to this place, which, by the way, was inhabited before my ancestors got here. And settler colonialism is one of the big, long legacies at play. Many groups of people have come. And what we have mostly had are huge waves of assimilation and huge waves of acceptance. And the line has been around this construction of whiteness, the idea that some people can be accepted into this category we call white, while others are not. And many arriving groups in the late 1800s were not thought of as white when they arrived, but were able to sort of gain whiteness in the early 20th century. And and that block is sort of the definition that we run with now. All of these things are historically constructed. And I think the history shows us how flexible all of this is, especially when we look back over time. We are speaking with Professor Kathleen Bellew. Her latest book, which she co-edited with Ramon A. Gutierrez, is A Field Guide to White Supremacy. I always learn so much from your books, Kathleen. For example, I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised by this, but the Naturalization Act of 1790, which was in effect till 1944, said that only free white persons could be naturalized And it would take two years to do that. That was then changed in 1795 to five years to become citizens. And in 1798, to require 14 years of being in this country. I had never realized it was put out that explicitly when the country was so young. And you sort of alluded to the who is white And at that time, it required a judgment from a civil court to determine whiteness. And it was a very stringent test. Share with our listeners what you think of that process and progress to the present. I think that we often think about, and many people are rightly very, very proud of the idea that The United States is a radical promise of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness and unalienable rights, right? I think that we don't always remember or don't always learn in history class that that promise was never meant for many of us. It wasn't meant for me and you, for instance. It was meant for free, white, property-owning men. Full stop. And then over time, the long sweep of history is that other people were able to be included in that full citizenship, not through sort of the magnanimity and goodwill of the people who already had that power most of the time, but through organizing and coalition building and and marching and demanding and acting. And we see that, that the people who wanted to be included are very much agents of their own history and trying to become part of that democratic process. So we see the slow expansion of the enfranchisement to men who don't have property, and then to people of color, to women. And as we know today, if you look around at all of the attacks on voting rights, this is still a basic fight that is still being fought. The other thing I would say is that we know that also whiteness and blackness and non-whiteness and Latinidad and, and all of these categories are also deeply, deeply historically contingent and are constructed in particular contexts and change very dramatically over time. So whiteness in early America was really about a political kind of alliance between different ethnic groups who were inhabitants of the colonies. 
And then we see sort of the beginnings of scientific racism in the 1800s and the rise of pseudosciences like eugenics and phrenology, head measurement, all of this, and social Darwinism in the late 1800s and beginning of the 1900s. All the way up to the present, we're talking about the way that white people became incorporated into this constructed political category while others were denied citizenship in different kinds of ways. I was just talking to the eminent historian May Nye on a panel last night about this, and she made a very good point that historians, we often talk about change over time or continuity, which is, is this the same or is this different? But she said, we really like stories about contingency, which is that it it was the same or different, but that nobody knew which way it was going to go at the time. There's this big hinge in history about outcomes. And part of the great thing about learning history is learning how much room there is for that kind of change. Because at the end of the day, all of these are categories that we created for ourselves. And to the extent that we're bound by them, that requires us to accept them. And, and we don't have to. Well, these have profound repercussions in terms of people's lives. For example, I read somewhere that at the beginning of the United States, Benjamin Franklin did not think that people of German descent were white. I think they mostly wanted to to be people from the British Isles were white and everybody else was suspect. <laughs> but then we go on and the issue of blood quantum in some cases if you were descended from africans any quantity of heritage with an ancestor from africa was enough to make you not white on the other hand if you are an indigenous person you have to come up to a certain large quantity of ancestry to be considered an enrolled member of a tribe or entitled to certain things. So the whole thing is so arbitrary and so rigged. I'll just add that I'm not an early Americanist, but I, I believe the Benjamin Franklin objection has to do with the extent of vigilante violence perpetrated by German colonists against Quakers in and around Philadelphia around that time. And there was an enormous amount of inter-ethnic violence in early America as well, with these groups really at war with each other. And then even more recently, thinking about the category of whiteness, arriving immigrants in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, who we would now think of as white, were not always thought of that way at the time. The Irish were deeply racialized, Polish and other Southern European immigrants were deeply racialized. Eastern Europeans were deeply racialized. And then by around 1924, the idea of Caucasian, which again comes from sort of a pseudoscientific taxonomy system, created a category that everyone would fit into. And that's the thing that we're operating with today. But that's constructed not even 100 years ago. This is very recent that this happened. It's all a, a very interesting set of things. And I would also throw in that as more and more people do their Ancestry.com send away DNA kits, I think a lot of people are experiencing quite a bit of shock about the difference between their results and what they think of their own racial identity to be. I want to return to the Great Replacement issue because it keeps coming up, especially like in Charlottesville, the refrain, Jews will not replace us and you will not replace us and all that. In the chapter, Fear of White Replacement, Latina Fertility, White Demographic Decline and Immigration Reform by Leo R. Chavez, he actually documents the fallacy of this. Would you share with us the realities of particularly Latina fertility rates in the United States? Yes, I'm so sorry. I would have to go and refresh my memory about the exact numbers. But what, what he traces so powerfully in that essay is that this fear is dramatically inflated and that many sort of media shortcuts about how women of color especially are depicted have been sort of fanning the flames of this panic. But I would also say, like, I think it's worth distinguishing between a sort of general worry about immigration and reproduction among populations of color and the white birth rate 
and the great replacement proper, like in caps, which is what we've been hearing most lately on Fox News and certainly at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville and other places. The great replacement takes all of that one step further because it argues that this is deliberate, that there is a cabal of evil elites, usually Jewish people, who are attempting to deliberately disappear or destroy the white race through intermarriage, increasing immigration, and other kinds of attacks. And that belief system has been around for a good long time. It certainly has been around for decades, if not generations, within the white power movement. And arguably, this is the same thing that's been with us throughout a longer study of 20th century history back to something like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. So the Great Replacement Theory adds a layer of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory to this fear of demographic change. What Mr. Chavez demonstrates is that two things. As a proportion of the entire population, immigration rates are pretty steady, just under 15 percent, and that Although it's true that birth rates per thousand women ages 15 to 44 for foreign-born women initially is high compared to the people who have been here for longer, by the third generation, it is absolutely identical to the general population. I thought that that was very helpful to have those sorts of statistics. Yeah, yeah, so thank you for including <laughs> Mr. Chavez's work. I, there was something that I found very poignant in the chapter Anti-Asian Violence and U.S. Imperialism by Simeon Mann. He included a quote by General Westmoreland from the Vietnam War era. And the quote is, The Oriental doesn't put the same high price on life as the Westerner. Life is cheap in the Orient. Now, the reason that stood out to me was I was about 11 or 12 when he made that statement, and I heard it. And being an ignorant person at 11 and 12, I thought, oh, oh, so they just don't think of life the way we do. And I was absolutely persuaded by his assertion. Well, of course, I outgrew that and learned otherwise. But the experience of having been persuaded by a statement like that, and when I learned how false it was, really affected me profoundly. Wow. And, and I'm sure that I am not alone, uh, not necessarily with that specific statement, but assertions that are made about how people from other countries or other cultures experience life can be so destructive So I'm wondering, how would you like to respond to that phenomenon? I suppose I would just say that, you know, from the point of view of of teaching and educating about white supremacy, that's a really good example of the impact that our public figures can have on individual people who may or may not themselves have a belief system that is compatible, right? Like, it's not that you heard that and thought, oh, aha, this explains why I have this deep-seated racial hatred, right? You heard that and you thought, here is some information coming to me from a trusted source. And I think that it really points out that our elected representatives and our public figures and our media voices have a responsibility to the kind of information that they put out. Well, I think the way it worked was it was the middle of the Vietnam War. The the news, you know, I was just a kid, but even a kid hears the death tolls of U.S. soldiers and how the North Vietnamese just would not give up. And no amount of their mortality rates was going to change that. And this explained it to me. Oh, they don't yeah. value life. So it's okay for their comrades to die because they're not as valuable as Americans. And anyway, that, that's where I went with that. I mean, I think that's really interesting. And I would be remiss not to mention that Simeon Mann, Professor Mann, has another book out called Soldiering Through Empire that is all about the experience of Asian Americans in fighting the Vietnam War. And he looks at things like the way that mock villages 
to represent Vietnamese hamlets were constructed in Hawaii, for instance, to replicate the tropical climate, the way that Asian American enlistees ended up sometimes experiencing sort of a double PTSD because of both racism in the barracks and the experience of combat. It's super interesting. And so that might be worth a read for some people who are interested in that set of questions. This brings up the anti-Asian violence that has just been expanding in horrific ways in our country. And this goes beyond white supremacy insofar as some of the videos of Asian women in particular who have been the victims of anti-Asian violence, it has been perpetrated by people clearly of African descent as well as people of white ancestry. And Mm. many people believe that it's the influence, at least in part, of our former President Trump with his not-so-veiled anti-Asian rhetoric, particularly around COVID. And yeah. I'm just horrified by this this phenomenon. And it brings up, since COVID, there seems to be a rise in violence, like on airplanes and things like that. Now, you mentioned the talk last night where the speaker spoke about hinge moments. Mm-hmm. I wonder, do you think we are at a hinge moment in our culture now? I mean, certainly. I think the questions we get as historians are often things like, you know, is this like the flu of 1919 when we think about COVID? Is this like Watergate when we think about presidential distrust and the way that people think about politics? Is this like the financial crisis of the early 1970s? Is this like the civil rights movement when people were sort of struck by by African-Americans coming out into the streets? And it's all of that stuff at the same time. Plus, it's hyper-powered by social media, and we have this stay-at-home set of quarantines and lockdowns that are still coming around. And all of these things are, you know, it's, it's so many different historical push factors at the same time that I think we're just so far off the map. I, I don't really know how to make sense of a lot of it, but I do think that there are places where history can help shine a light on one aspect, but I think we are in a very intense crucible at the moment. Another aspect that is new to me anyway, I think this is primarily because of the COVID responses, the violence and threat of violence against government officials from Department of Health directors to school boards. I'm not aware of anything paralleling this in our history. But what it makes me think of is you're documenting the hinge, shall we say, in the white power movement away from what they had been before 1983, which was saying they were in support of the state, their their efforts, to being anti-state, anti-government. Do you yeah. see this as a connection with that? Well, so here's the thing about that. I think that in the time of Bring the War Home, they pivoted to revolution because they thought political action would never work. They talked about the time for the ballot has passed, now is time for the bullet. And they did that in the Reagan years. Like They thought that even with a Republican in office, they would never get the changes they wanted from mainstream politics. And so they sought to wage war on the whole thing and overthrow the country. I don't think the door to mainstream politics is closed now. We see a number of elected officials with ties with the militant right We see elected officials at the very top who are not even interested in participating in the process of finding out what happened on January 6th when there was a direct attack on our House of Government and on our democratic system. And we see call-outs to this movement by a number of elected officials. So the question about whether or not they are revolutionary or interested in a different tack, perhaps interested in using the political system to create a authoritarian white nationalist regime, I think is another thing we have to be worried about. But in terms of just the general violence, I think that a lot of the pushes towards radicalization, like economic precarity, like major moments of social transformation, 
like frustration, which I mean, in the age of COVID is abundant. I think all of that has created a very volatile mix of sentiment and opportunity for people who are interested in taking violent action. And I will say too, though, that there is some precedent for violence being targeted at those folks. So the white power movement has long targeted federal officials as sort of the people carrying out the will of the state. So we see in the 80s, the targeting of agents of the Bureau of Land Management, the FBI, state troopers, etc. And I will say that schools have long been a site of violent altercation. We can look at the civil rights movement and massive resistance to integration. And I think that it's, it's a likely place for continued activism. Well, let's stay on the schools for a moment. Professor Henry Giroux has been writing about what he calls apartheid education. And one of the things at the school board meetings is adamant resistance to any kind of education around the history of race in our country. Yeah. And they've taken critical race studies and critical race theory and completely destroyed what it actually means and turned it around as racism itself. And as a professor of history, one who educates on this very topic, how do you respond to to this situation? It is very disheartening, and it seems new but is not new. So there's a fantastic book that I recommend to everyone called Mothers of Massive Resistance by Elizabeth McRae that traces the way that school curriculum has been the sort of ground zero for articulating white supremacy for at least 100 years. She notes that after Reconstruction, they rewrote how we taught the Civil War, They rewrote how we taught Reconstruction in order to prop up Jim Crow. They rewrote how we taught Jim Crow in order to prop up civil rights era segregation of schools. And these school boards have been highly targeted sites of right-wing activism for exactly this reason. It's a really effective place to get your ideology out there. But I will say that there is no responsible telling of American history that omits white supremacy because it is one of the huge engines of our our national life. Your co-editor, Ramon A. Gutierrez, his article, A Recent History of White Supremacy, illustrates this topic, talking about the GI Bill of Rights. I think it's a very good example of how systemic racism has played out in our country. Could you explain some of the aspects of that that were discriminatory? Sure. So the GI Bill is the package of benefits made available to returning veterans after World War II. It's perhaps the largest redistribution of wealth in American history. And it gave things like free college education or reduced cost college education, housing loans, small business startup loans, all kinds of investment in people so that they could enjoy an upward trajectory into the middle class. But historians have found that those benefits were not equally distributed. They mostly went to white, straight men. So we get a wealth redistribution that mostly goes to white, straight men who then use those benefits to buy houses, get their college degree, et cetera, and move themselves up the social ladder. And then, as another historian, Matt Lassiter, has documented, these are the same people who inhabit the suburbs and believe that they got there with no help from the federal government and through hard work alone. So it constructs both a unequal distribution of wealth towards the white community, and it constructs a myth about getting where you are only through hard work that allows people to be more individualistic and less collective moving forward. Now, I'm not saying that white homeowners in the suburbs have not also worked hard. I'm just saying that if we look simply at what people give and take from the state, the GI Bill disproportionately benefited white men. Okay, so you brought up the straight aspect and homophobia and transphobia are two of the things that are addressed in A Field Guide to White Supremacy. Would you very briefly explain that connection? 
Sure. I think, again, we came to this guide from the point of view of wanting to understand hate crime and hate motivated violence, as well as systemic inequality. And by both of those measures, people who are trans or people who identify with a gender other than the one assigned at birth face incredibly difficult odds in both of those measures. They are disproportionately impacted by violence. They are disproportionately impacted by absence of wealth. And when we look at intersections of trans identity with people of color, those numbers get even more alarming. So it seemed important to include an essay about that in the volume. Well, I was wondering if the connection might also include the rather rigid hierarchical structure of white supremacy and white power. People have their place and masculinity is only this kind of thing. Femininity is only that kind of thing. Am I off base on that? No, I think that's right. And certainly traditionalism has, traditional gender roles have worked to uphold white supremacy at several different historical moments. So transgression of those roles is always a threat to the system. Yes. Well, Professor Kathleen Ballou, we are just about out of time. I want to give you a moment to share with our listeners something I failed to ask you or something that interviewers never ask you and you wish that they did. Oh, what an interesting question. Okay, let me think for a second. That's a great question. Well, one question that I get a lot in the comments section um, and maybe not in interviews is what can individual people do about this problem? Because I think it can feel very totalizing and impossible, especially we open our Twitter or our newspaper app or whatever, and it's it's just a, a fire hose of impossible information every day, and it can feel very overwhelming. And I just want to say that I think that what the history shows us is that there are an enormous range of ways that everyday people can take action against white supremacy in their own communities. And I think that everywhere, whoever you are, wherever you live, there are concrete things you can do. So I would encourage people to reach out in your local community and and see where you are needed and to begin to do the work there, to continue to work to preserve our democracy on the national level as well. And just thank you to everyone who's listening. It's a hard conversation to have, and I appreciate you taking the time to do it. Well, Professor Kathleen Ballou, thank you so much for your work and for joining us today on Forthright Radio. I appreciate it profoundly. Thank you very much for having me. This was a, a wonderful conversation. You have just heard a conversation with University of Chicago history professor Kathleen Ballou. Her book, A Field Guide to White Supremacy was just published by the University of California Press. Her 2018 book, Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement in Paramilitary America, is published by Harvard University Press. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. You are not my blood. And-